This is the Visible Hand, Special Job Market Edition. My name is Jordi Blanes y Vidal. My guest today is Beate Thies, who is a PhD student in economics at the University of Mannheim. Today we are going to talk about her job market paper, air quality, high-skilled worker productivity and adaptation, evidence from GitHub, joined with Felix Holub. Beate, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Beate, you study in this paper essentially the effect of air pollution on productivity for software developers. Before we go into the specifics of your study and how it adds to the existing literature, can you tell us what we know at this point prior to your study about the effect of air pollution on productivity? Yeah, sure. So already prior to our paper, there was solid evidence that air pollution is bad for our cognitive performance and for worker productivity in a variety of settings. So there are quasi-experimental studies who have analyzed this. And uh, where we saw the gap in the literature, so where the evidence base was relatively thin, is regarding effects on highly skilled workers, and especially those who work in modern work environments where you typically have a lot of flexibility and your work is relatively unstructured and you're very free in organizing it. So this is where evidence was scarce and where we fit in. But just the fact that air pollution is bad for labor market outcomes and for cognitive performance, we already knew that from existing literature. So just to expand on, on what you are saying, one of these studies seems to be on uh, chess players, right? So chess players will be a more cognitively demanding occupation than almost any other. But what you are saying here is chess players do not have the opportunity to say, let's freeze the game. Let me go back tomorrow and I'll pick it up when air pollution is better. Exactly. Your argument will be in most jobs, in most like white collar jobs, knowledge worker type of jobs, uh, we have a certain amount of flexibility uh, in, in build. What is the setting then that you study and the actual questions that, that, that you examine in this paper? So what we study are software developers and uh, especially those who are working on GitHub, so on the big coding platform. And the comparison to chess players, I think that's really good to illustrate our point because chess players uh, were observed when they compete in a chess tournament. So they really have zero flexibility. They have to perform this specific task really when the tournament takes place. And we argue modern work environments are very different, as you also just said. So we have two questions. We want to quantify the impact of air pollution on productivity of software developers, so high-skilled workers in such a really flexible environment. We want to know how big is the magnitude if you have these options to adapt. And then secondly, we also want to find out whether they use certain forms of adaptation, whether they use the flexibility in work schedules or in organization of their workday, what tasks they work on to adapt to pollution-induced productivity shocks. Correct me if I'm wrong, the more novel part of your contribution will be on this second point that you mentioned. Uh, obviously, when people study certain questions and focus on certain occupations or settings, they find certain estimates. There is no expectation, at least on my part, that other people looking at other settings with other type of natural experience will find the same number, right? 
So the, the numbers that you will find for the average effect are going to be different, as we would expect. But the second part is the one that has not been uh, studied that much. That's true. But we think that the second part is also um, part of the explanation why the productivity effects that we find are smaller than in other occupations. So an important thing to understand there is what GitHub is. I don't know anything about it. Many people listening will not know that much about it. Can you describe what is it and how it allows you to measure the productivity of these software developers? Sure. GitHub is the world's largest platform for storing code projects. It's used by a really large number of people for storing their projects and jointly working on them. And I guess many listeners who are maybe working more empirically probably have also used GitHub already themselves. The nice thing is that a large part of all coding activity on GitHub is publicly observable because it was initially set up for open source projects. There's publicly available data on all the activities that happen in public GitHub repositories, and we access this data, and this allows us to measure developer productivity just by counting the number of activities that a developer conducts on GitHub on a given day. So we use this as a measure of daily output. But if, say, I am an empirical economist, as, as uh, you are, would it be possible for us to, say, keep our Stata code in GitHub and then work without co-authors on that piece of code and keep it there as a, like a, like a, a common project? Would that be the idea? Like, are we the typical type of workers? You call them software developers, and I guess that would be like an aspect of our work, but are we the type of people who might be interested in using this open source platform? No, that's a very good point. So we're probably among the people who use GitHub, but we are not the individuals who are of interest for our study here, because most economists, for instance, probably have private projects where you don't want that your starter code, for instance, is visible to everyone. And this is not observable in our data. So there's an important distinction between public and private projects, and we can only observe what happens in the public part. So when we build our sample, we have a number of strategies to really make sure that who we capture are professional developers who do really relevant share of their formal work in the public part of GitHub. What type of job is that then? Like you are saying these are professionals, but they are happy for the work to be public. It seems like a, a strange type of occupation in which you are giving away your trade secrets in real time, right? Uh, you are allowing anybody to see all the uh, value that you are adding to these projects. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Who are these people? So when we construct our sample, what we do is that we only include users who ever made code changes to projects that are owned by big tech companies. For instance, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, they all have a number of projects on GitHub that they really operate and these are public. Um, and so when we focus on the user who, who can change code in these projects, then we think, this is a strong signal that they are affiliated with these companies and probably employees. But of course, we don't know whether they are representative for the total population of software developers who work on proprietary firm projects. But in terms of skills and activities, they should be very similar. So there are big software companies that have proprietary software, but somehow, for some reason, 
they complement that with open source software. The people that are contributing to those are probably not doing it out of the goodness of their heart. So you infer that these developers that are working on something that is going to benefit Facebook are not altruistic towards Facebook, but instead are paid by Facebook. Exactly. That's the way that you claim, at least with a high probability, these are software developers. Exactly. We think the developers are employees. We also have like self-report on employers for a subset of our developers in the sample. And there we see the top employers that they report are Google and Microsoft. Um, so they get paid um, by these companies. But the companies, of course, they also have certain objectives probably when engaging in open source, for instance, for their reputation. But we are interested in the productivity of the employees, which we can observe on GitHub. What are the actions that you, GitHub allows you to measure that are capturing the performance or productivity of these developers? So the core action that we observe, which is very important in our paper, is called a commit. And this is just indicating that a user just submitted a code change to a project. So it's reflecting individual coding activity. Uh, we don't have information on the number of lines of code. We just know the user submitted some changes to a project. Um, and then there are also other types of activities, for instance, more interactive ones like writing comments in discussion fora and engaging in collaborative work with other users. Our main outcome to measure work quantity is just the sum of all these activities. You have also pull requests and issues. What are those? So these are additional features that are like provided by GitHub in order to facilitate collaboration. So pull request is also about coding. That's also a code change that you want to submit. But this has a built-in review process where the um, people that operate a repository first have to review your changes and then they can accept or reject them but it's also related to coding. And uh, issues are text messages, and typically these are used to organize tasks or report bugs or suggest improvements to a given project. I'm going to repeat all these things because obviously you're going to put them on the left-hand side. The interpretation of all these things is critical for the type of quantity versus quality versus issues that are easy or difficult that you are going to uh, argue later. So a commit is a discrete variable that captures that I have changed some code, I don't know how much, on the core project. A comment is some type of like a, I, I guess a, a comment that I make to other people that are working on the same type of code, you know, like that tells them, let's split work this way, or you do this part, or what do you think about it, or Let's fix strategy about that. Yeah, that would be one example, but it could also, like somebody has submitted a pull request, suggested changes, and you give them feedback on their work. That would also be an example for comments. So if I work in Facebook and I am going to be the user of a particular project, that is, I'm going to take that project and then incorporate it, put it together with some other code or something, and, but I'm not directly responsible. I'm not part of the members of the team that are directly responsible for that. I can at some point intervene and say, well, why don't you do it this way or that way? Because it's going to affect me. And I can make that proposal through a pull request. That is, I can type directly what I would like to see, but because it is not my direct responsibility, 
it's only like a proposal to the to the team. That will be a pull request, correct? And then the team can accept or reject that. Yeah, that's a good example for a pull request. So it is a core instrument, as you described, to allow outsiders to contribute to the project. But it can also be used within a team. If you are, for instance, proposing a change on a part of the code where you're not the expert and you want the expert within the team to review your changes before they are merged into the code base. then So it's not only used by outsiders, but it can also be used by team members among themselves. How do you measure air pollution? We collected data from outdoor monitors from several countries. So in most countries, the National Environmental Agency operates these monitors to get information on the state of air quality. In the US, for instance, would be the US Environmental Protection Agency. In Germany, we have the Federal Environmental Agency and so on. So in most countries, especially developed countries, this is monitored. And um, we collect this data on fine particulate matter. So this is the type of air pollution that is most relevant for our project because it has been shown to have widespread effects on human health and it can also reach indoor office workers. So fine particular matter is actually a variable that you are going to use, but that was also used in the paper by Advaryu Kala and Nish Hadham management and shocks to worker productivity, which is an earlier episode of this podcast series. So I say this to me that it's not that you have come up with this particular idea, but this seems to be, there seems to be some type of consensus in the literature that this particular type of pollution is particularly bad for, for productivity. Exactly. It's mostly based on the vast evidence on adverse health effects for this particular pollutant, right? So you have already mentioned that you restrict your data set to a set of developers that are contributing to this type of like corporate projects so that we have certain confidence that these are professional software developers. How else do you construct your data set? You say that you are missing air pollution. What is the sample that you use? How is it constructed? Uh, how it is restricted and so on. You already mentioned the restriction that we use to focus on professionals. Another restriction that we impose is that we only use users who self-report a location on their GitHub profile, at least at the city level, because we need this in order to assign their local air pollution. And lastly, another important restriction is that a user can only enter our sample after he had at least 20 commits, 20 code changes, in public repositories in any given calendar months. And this is an additional restriction that we impose in order to make sure that those developers we capture are really very active in the public part of GitHub and makes sense to use GitHub activity as a measure for their overall productivity. Um, and then we merge the GitHub productivity data with our information on air pollution at the city by date level. And uh, this gives us a sample of roughly 25,000 software developers. And the nice feature of GitHub is that it is a global platform. So we have pretty wide geographic coverage. In total, it's close to 200 cities across four different continents. And the data set spans five years. Exactly. It's from early 2014 to mid-2019. So you are going to construct essentially a panel data set at the developer and day level, where pollution is changing on the right-hand side and then productivity 
is moving on the left-hand side because you can study the amount of uh, activities on GitHub that every developer creates every day. Going back to the outcome measures, I think that these commits that are like big changes to the code, I understand that this is a measure of productivity, but I want to go back to the issue of the comments. If these were journalists instead of software developers, one analogy here would be that the commits are the articles that they write in their newspapers, let's say, and the comments will be the tweets that they release on the Twitter platform. When it comes to Twitter, I wouldn't be sure that this is productivity as opposed to leisure. Do we have confidence that these comments are actually about working rather than chit-chatting with their members of the team or some other things that can be closer to leisure as opposed to actual productivity? Yeah, that's a good question. So I would say GitHub overall is a platform which is about working on software products. So it's not a platform which you use for leisure, especially those corporate developers that we have in our sample. So that's the first point. As I mentioned, a lot of these comments, for instance, comments on pull requests, are about giving other people feedback about their code quality, pointing out errors. So I would say this is also clearly work-related or answering questions asked by users of a given software, responding to reports about bugs and so forth. And uh, another point to check whether this is more work activity or leisure activity is that we look at the profile of activity across hours of the day. And there we see for total actions that they are strongly concentrated within the core working hours from nine to five. And this is true for both commits and comments, for comments even more so, probably because um, it makes most sense to communicate with others when they are also working. So I would say overall, this indicates that all of these activities we measure are broadly related to working on software products. Uh, when you talk about actions, just to be clear, this is the sum of commits, comments, pull requests, issues, which is another type of like message uh, to coordinate, closing of pull requests and issues. Everything that they do, that will exactly. be what you put in the yep. basket of actions. Okay, so we have a panel data set of developers and days. The left-hand side variable is different methods of productivity. Right-hand side variable is pollution. You could run a standard regression because obviously pollution changes day by day. Some days it is really bad, sometimes not so bad. Do you just run a regression or do you have an empirical strategy because you are not quite certain that a standard OLS regression controlling for, say, developer fixed effects and they fix effects will be enough to give you the causal effects. Yeah, we do use an instrumental variable strategy for causal identification because in this literature strand on the causal impacts of air pollution, it's a well-known issue that um, pollution is not randomly assigned and there are likely endogeneity issues. So one major concern is that there could be omitted variables. So in our case, um, you could imagine that there's a big event in the city where the developer is located or maybe a major road is closed due to construction work or a bridge is closed. And this could um, affect traffic. And of course, congestion increases pollution at the same time Traffic congestion could also affect productivity because it affects commuting routes or 
uh, generates stress, changes work patterns and so forth. So this is one concern. And the second concern that is also very well known in this literature is measurement error, because as we talked about earlier, we use um, pollution readings from these outdoor monitors. And typically per city, we have at most a handful of monitors. Then we compute a city level average. But of course, this is only a rough proxy for individual pollution exposure of a given developer who moves through the city. And both of these issues can be addressed by an instrumental variable strategy. And here we um, actually adopt a really cool strategy from an earlier paper in 2019 by Tatiana DiRugina and co-authors, which is based on day-to-day -day changes in wind direction as a driver of exogenous changes in pollution. So two issues with the OLS. The first one you said endogeneity. I have to say that the examples you are giving about the football match or the closing of a bridge, they seem relatively unlikely. I don't know that there are that many football matches that are going to affect pollution at a citywide level in a way that is really going to contaminate the estimates that much. The measurement error issue that I can see is clear that the fact that the pollution reading is very high in a particular location of the city doesn't mean that it is also high in a different neighborhood where a specific developer may be sitting. Instrumental variables is well known to be able to solve or at least alleviate measurement error. But I want to go back later to see how actually that works because I didn't quite understand it. Can you be more specific about how this uh, instrument is constructed? Because I know that you have 200 cities in the world and then obviously in a particular city pollution may be high when the wind is blowing from the north but that doesn't mean that in a different city pollution will also be high when the wind is city from the north right if we are comparing hong kong and uh, new york it's going to be very different how do you study how do you use this wind direction as an instrument in practice how is it that you construct your instrument? Yeah, that's a very important point that you're raising. So uh, we have two variables which measure wind direction, whether it comes from the east, west. This is captured by two wind directions, which broadly speaking measure uh, wind direction and radiance. And of course, as you said, across geography, the effect of different wind directions on local pollution will very likely vary because industrial area could be to the to the west or to the east of a given city. Um, and so we interact these two variables which measure wind direction which with 50 indicators for different geographic groups. And um, we um, construct these groups using a clustering algorithm based on city longitude and latitude, which just implies that within a given group, there are several cities in close geographic proximity to each other. So, for instance, all cities uh, in the area of Silicon Valley or uh, at the East Coast, certain cities are clustered together into one group. And then we allow the effects of wind direction to vary across these 50 groups. So we just, in the first stage, we estimate city group specific uh, coefficients on our wind direction variables. Let me see whether I understood this. Let's say that San Francisco and LA are in the same group. Both of them have the sea to the west. And typically when the wind blows from the sea, it is not carrying pollution. So then you put these two cities in the same group 
together with other that are in the um, coast of the of California, and for them, you estimate that pollution tends to be lower when the wind is blowing from the west. Now, this means that the, the predictor of low pollution for this cluster of cities will be wind from the west. Exactly. One question that I had about this is whether you take out from this estimation the city itself on which you are running the regression. Because if you don't want to do this city by city level, that is, if you want to group these cities into groups, uh, you say in the paper that this is because running this regression on the city itself is somehow not great because it may lead to some type of endogeneity. But if you do it at the group level, then the estimate that you get is also going to be at least in some share affected by the city itself. That is, if you don't want to run the regression only on LA because there is a certain endogeneity that comes from measuring this relation only on LA and you are clustering, grouping it with San Francisco as well, well, still LA is going to contribute to half of this estimation. So shouldn't you do like a leave out instrument? Shouldn't you take out the city itself? No, we don't take out the city. We just um, assign it into the group. But let me elaborate a little bit also on this uh, endogeneity concern that you raised. So um, our concern is that imagine in LA, there's just one single pollution monitor. And maybe, um, as you described, typically west wind brings in rather clean air into the city because there's the ocean. Um, but if the pollution monitor is located just to the west of a local pollution source, then um, at this particular monitor, readings would increase if wind arrives from the west. Yeah, but this is not um, really reflective of the average pollution exposure of citizens in L.A., because this local pollution source just affects a small part of the city, maybe one half and the other half to the uh, west of the source is not affected at all. And we want to um, mitigate the impact of these local pollution sources. And by grouping LA together with San Francisco and maybe some other cities in Silicon Valley, so typically there's a um, number of cities within one group, we can like dampen the influence of these local pollution sources. Um, indeed, as you said, we could go one step further and drop each city from the estimation. But I think that's not necessary because typically we have multiple pollution monitors in these cities because they are pretty large. And by additionally grouping it with other cities, the influence of these local pollution sources that we are concerned about should be um, dampened quite a bit. I understood the issue to being one of endogeneity, but from the description that you're giving, it seems that the issue is more one of measurement error. Yeah, exactly. It's a measurement okay. problem. It's a measurement error problem. But then I don't understand why when you are alleviating or dampening with the strategy, you wouldn't want to go one step further and fully eliminate. You are saying that we don't need to fully eliminate because there are many monitors. But then if there are many monitors, then your measurement problem that comes from having a factory just to the west of the monitor and therefore misleading you in uh, concluding that wind from the west is good for LA shouldn't be that much of a problem because as we increase the number of monitors to infinity, the likelihood of this factory to the west happening becomes smaller and smaller. So you wouldn't need the cluster at all. 
Um, but by clustering, we exactly do this. So we increase the number of monitors with, within one group because we um, consider multiple cities. And um, now that you say it, like leaving out LA would not be super helpful because then we could have the same problem with monitors in San Francisco. They can also be located close to a local pollution source. And then it's, again, not really reflective of the broad impact of broad wind patterns on pollution in California. So by focusing on city groups on a large number of monitors, we can add each of these monitors and all the cities mitigate the effect of local pollution sources and really focus on the effect of broad wind patterns, which affect all cities and all residents within a geographic area in the same way. That's the aim of this approach. So this is the two-stage least square strategy. What are the results that you find using this strategy on the quantity of work that these developers have as a function of the air pollution in their cities? We find that increases in air pollution reduce output quantity generated by developers on a given day. Um, when air pollution is above the 75th city-specific percentile, which is one of our main regressors, so less formally you could say an indicator for unusually high pollution in a given city, then we find that this reduces output by 4%, so the total number of actions, relative to days with better air quality. And our results show that this is driven by a reduction in the number of commits. So the number of submitted code changes, which fall by um, about 6%. What about the number of comments? They are much less affected. So we don't find significant reductions in the number of comments. So the interpretation here, as you give in the paper, is that individual work, which is commits, is affected while interactive work which is comments is not affected. Exactly, that's our interpretation. I now want to go back to the issue of measurement error and how this instrument solves or alleviates the measurement error problem. As I said earlier, IV is typically regarded as helping when the independent variable is captured with error. Uh, in the case that you have the two-stage least square estimates are much higher than the OLS estimates, which will be indicative that indeed the OLS estimates are affected by substantial measurement error. And this will be coming, as you said earlier, by the fact that the pollution has been measured by the monitors who happen to be somewhere in the city um, is not a perfect proxy of the pollution where the actual software developer is sitting perhaps in a different neighborhood. My question is the following. When you do the two-stage least square strategy, you have as independent variable in the second stage, the predicted value on the monitor station reading that comes from variation in wind direction. This is the fitted values that you are putting on the second stage regression. These fitted values, I would expect, are still subject to the same measurement error problem because they still represent measures in the monitor stations, which can still be very different from the actual pollution where the developer is sitting. That is, the fitted value, the, the generated regressor, is still a bad proxy for the problem that you initially had, which is that developer may be somewhere else. So can you help me in terms of understanding the logic as to how the IV alleviates measurement error in this type of setting? Yeah, sure. Um, so you're right. Like the 
monitor reading at a given monitor in a certain neighborhood of the city probably does not uh, reflect individual pollution exposure of developers who might be at a very different location within the same city. But the changes in pollution at this monitor from day to day, which are driven by changes in broad wind patterns, should be reflective of changes in pollution exposure of these developers within the city. Yeah, so our idea is to exploit really broad wind patterns, which change pollution in the same way in a broad geographic region. And this should be relevant for developers, irrespective of where they are located in the city. How do the results here? compared to the ones in earlier papers that uh, you mentioned at the beginning of our discussion uh, for chess players, fruit pickers, judges, etc. Yeah, we find that um, the reductions in output quantity are at the lower end of estimates found so far in other occupations. And especially they are considerably smaller than the effects which were found in these other um, settings where workers are engaged in cognitively demanding tasks like the chess players and judges. This is only when we talk about output quantity. So we also constructed some output quality measures and there we don't find um, negative effects of air pollution. So we find no evidence that developers commit more coding errors, for instance. And this is also in contrast to other papers on other occupations. So overall effects are more modest. Can you remind us what the measures of quality of work are? Sure. We measure error frequency in code. And to do this, we uh, consider two variables. The first is for all commits that a user submitted on a given day, so all code changes, we measure what share of these commits gets undone later on at a later point in time. So that's a distinctive feature of GitHub. You can fully revert a given commit and this is typically a signal that there were severe problems with the code. Yeah, you cannot easily fix this with a follow-on commit, changing the initial commit a little bit. You really have to undo the whole code change. The second measure is related. So here we focus on pull requests, these code changes that you propose and which have to get reviewed by others before they can be merged. Um, and here we just measure what share of pull requests that you send uh, get rejected. Again, interpreting this as a signal of poor code quality or issues with style, so low work quality overall. So share of all the pull requests that a user open that are later merged, that, that will be high quality. Share of commits made by a user that are later reverted, that will be bad quality. And this second thing happens very, very rarely. So you are really going to have very little statistical power to detect anything there. With respect to the first variable, one thing that I noticed was that um, when you use as the independent variable the high pollution dummy, you find here like a positive relation. That seems a little bit counterintuitive together with everything that we have been discussing so far. How do you interpret that? Yeah, that's a good point. So when we just use the linear PM2.5 measure, we just find insignificant effects, no changes, but it's true when we focus on this indicator for really high pollution days, we see increase in the share of pull requests which get merged, so an improvement in work quality. And um, that's indeed puzzling. And uh, we think that worker adaptation, which we mentioned earlier, here is a potential explanation for this, because when we move to adaptation, we see that workers, for instance, focus on easier tasks on high pollution days. And when they concentrate on these easy tasks, it seems 
less counterintuitive that uh, the probability that their pull requests get accepted increases. As we were mentioning at the beginning, the fact that these knowledge workers are able to adapt their work to the low productivity shock that they are receiving through the air pollution is really a core part of the paper. You have several results that are pointing in this direction. Can you describe first the one that looks at the share of issue events that um, refer to an easy issue? What is that variable and what do you find there? Sure. So we use this variable, among others, to, as I just described, investigate whether software developers focus on easier tasks when air pollution increases as a way to adapt to the productivity shock. Um, you already mentioned one of the variables. So um, for all activities on GitHub, which relate to an issue, like opening or closing an issue or commenting on it, um, we can see whether the issue that it refers to is easy. And to classify issues as easy or not easy, we use a certain feature of GitHub, namely the possibility that you can assign labels to the issues in your repository. So users would typically do this in order to just enhance their workflow to highlight the category of an issue. Is it a bug, something about documentation, a feature request or something else? And there are also a large number of um, labels which highlight the difficulty of an issue. So examples would be good first issue or beginner friendly. So the original purpose of these labels is to incentivize outsiders to contribute to the, your project by showing, okay, you don't need a lot of expert knowledge of our project, it's, it's suitable for beginners to address this issue. Um, and we think that's a strong indicator that the issue is of relatively low difficulty. And there are more of these labels, for instance, easy fix, simple or trivial. So we uh, compile a list of all these issues which indicate low difficulty, and then we measure the share of issue events which refer to easy issues to measure whether developers focus on easier tasks. At the beginning, we were mentioning the message of performance. Commits were substantial changes of the code. Pull requests were substantial changes to the code that were proposed. Comments were messages to other people who are working on the code to coordinate and so on. How are issues different from comments then? Um, it's similar. So with an issue, you like open a conversation, which, as I said, could be about reporting a bug talking about requests of users of the software for new features and so on. Um, and then comments can also refer to issues. So it's a discussion about open questions, about open tasks or bugs, for instance. You don't look at, at the other things or you focus on the issues because they have this specific label that tells you whether they're easy or difficult, correct? Exactly. That's the reason why we focus on issues, but we also have a difficulty measure for one of the coding-related activities. So these are pull requests. Let, let me, I'll go back to that, to those ones in a second, but just keeping on the issues, you were talking about the dependent variable being the share of the issues completed that refer to an easy issue as captured by these labels. Now, this share can go up because the number of easy issues went up or because the number of difficult issues went down because the number of difficult issues is in the denominator of this share. Is it's contributing to the number of total issues. Shouldn't you have a regression in which the left-hand side variable is the absolute number of easy issues completed 
in addition to the share, because if the share goes up just because the number of difficult issues completed went down, more than an issue of adjustment, it's just an issue of decreasing productivity along a particular dimension. And yes, the developers are choosing what dimension to cut down in, but there is not the same type of notion of doing less on A in order to do more on B, that more like a sophisticated theory of adjustment will be associated with. It's true. That would be another uh, form of adjustment. What we do to address this is we run the regression for the denominator. So for the total number of issue wins, and we find zero effects on this, which is also consistent with um, the result we discussed earlier that more interactive activities, engaging in discussions with others, that we find no effects for that. Um, so we check that the denominator stays constant. So changes in the share should be driven by increases in the numerator. That was the first evidence on adjustment. You say that you have another one on lines of code, specifically pull requests. What is that? Yeah, this targets the same form of adjustment, namely focusing on easier tasks. But here, as you mentioned, we want to concentrate more on coding activity and whether we also find this form of adjustment when we look at this type of activities. And we can do this for pull requests. Um, and on pull requests, we have the information how many new lines of code were added in this proposed code change and how many distinct code files were changed. And we interpret these two variables as measures of the complexity of the task which is addressed in this pull request. And then for all pull requests that a user either creates or reviews on a given day, we measure what is the average number of new lines of code added and code files changed to here again approximate the complexity of these activities. When I read this, I was initially thinking that this was not a measure of complexity instead an alternative measure of the quantity of the work. You are looking at pull requests because as opposed to with commits, you can actually measure the number of lines, correct? Otherwise, you will be doing the same for commits. But you're looking at pull requests just because you can measure the number of lines. I think it is important to say that your measure of number of lines is conditional on the pull request taking place. That, that is, if your variable was just the number of lines that these people write on any average over any pull request that they do, that measure could be zero if there are no pull requests, or it could be whatever number, if there is one, two, three, whatever pull request, that would be a measure of quantity that is continuous instead of discrete. And the way that you have it discrete because pull requests are typically a small number, zero, one, two, three, but not 300 on a day. But here you have it conditional on having pull requests, which means that conditional on doing a certain task, that task is easier if we believe that the number of lines is a measure of difficulty or ease of the task, correct? That would be the argument here. Exactly. That's our interpretation that um, these two variables, number of lines of code changed in a given pull request and number of code files changed, have information about the difficulty of the underlying task. What is the third margin of adjustment that uh, you study in the paper? Yeah, because the GitHub data for all activities contains a very precise timestamp when this activity was conducted up to the second, we can also use it to approximate 
working hours of these software developers. And the third adjustment margin that we analyze is whether um, software developers adjust the working hours when air pollution is high. And in particular, what we look at is whether they end work activity earlier on the day of pollution exposure. So to do this, we use the timestamp of the last activity of the day as an approximation to when workers end work activity on that day. And here we find that end of the work day happens earlier on days when air pollution is high. Is this a measure of adjustment or is this just a measure of inputs? Because earlier we were having productivity on the left-hand side, that's the output. But of course, output may go down also because the worker decides to put less input, right? So adjustment kind of implies that I'm doing less of this, but more of that, or less this day or more that day. But here, what you're measuring with the decrease in the working day is that at some point, the workers become so unproductive that they say, I just call it a day. Exactly. Yeah, that's our interpretation. They feel unproductive. They see it has no sense to continue work and they quit work early on that day. And as a measure of compensation for um, this reduced work input on the day of pollution exposure, we observe that they increase work activity on weekends. This is the fourth measure of adjustment that you have. Can you describe it in, in some detail? Yeah, I think it's um, connected to the adjustment margin we just talked about, like ending work activity earlier on the day of exposure. We think it's a reallocation of work activity to another point in time, namely the weekend. To analyze this, we use the data aggregated to the developer by week level, and then we regress like total work activity on the weekend on pollution exposure during the work week. Again, using the two stage least square strategy adapted to this different level of analysis. And yeah, we think the weekend, because work activity is of course much lower on the weekend as compared to weekdays, offers uh, developers a possibility to compensate for pollution shocks, therefore productivity shocks that occur during the work week and that slow down their progress during the work week. And we find that they indeed use this adjustment margin. So um, one additional day with high pollution during the work week increases work activity on the following weekend on average by a bit more than 2%. And we see that this effect is mostly driven by weekends where on the weekend itself, pollution is not very high. So you don't suffer a productivity shock on the weekend itself. And therefore you can use this to compensate for earlier productivity shocks. I'm going to describe this regression in a little bit more detail. So you have a sample that is not at the developer day level, but instead at the developer week level. So you are now adding up everything that happens on the two days of the weekend, right? Like the weekend is, is what you study. The, the dependent variable is work on the weekend of that week. The main independent variable is air pollution in the city between Monday and Wednesday of the week. Then you have developer fixed effects and the other controls everywhere, region by year, by quarter, public holidays, some vectors of other weather controls and so on. You are still using here the IV strategy. That is, you are still instrumenting the air pollution between Monday and Wednesday with the wind direction between Monday and Wednesday, correct? And then in this sample, 
what you find here is there are more activities, more productivity, actions, commits, etc., whatever. On the weekend, if there was a lot of pollution as instrumented by wind direction at the beginning of the week. The counterpart to the decrease of the working week that you were telling me earlier would be not just the output, but also the input. So you could put also the amount of time that they work on the left-hand side. Yeah, that's true. So we haven't done that yet because when we move to the weekly level, we already lose, of course, uh, statistical power because we have fewer observations. And when we want to look at time input, we need at least two actions per day in order to measure the, the time that lies between these two timestamps. And yeah, so we haven't done it yet, but I mean, we could check that. But the time could be zero if there's not any action. Yeah, that's true. Right? And then it will be whatever it is. Mm -hmm. if, if there are some actions, then you measure it in the way that you... Okay, so what can we do with these findings? That is, I guess that one thing is there is going to be a lot of environmental change in the future, unfortunately, uh, induced by climate change. Does that mean that along the dimension of productivity of software developers, things are not as bleak as they may seem because they can adjust a little bit and their work in order to alleviate the effect of these shocks. So therefore we shouldn't, maybe we should worry marginally less about climate change or is there any other type of conclusion that you draw from your results? Yeah, uh, one takeaway is indeed that when you compare it with the estimates which are found in other cognitively demanding occupations, that here um, the effect magnitude is smaller, probably because they have these adjustment margins. I wouldn't say that's a reason not to worry about environmental pollution at all, but I think it's important if we think about the economic cost of air pollution to get an estimate from these very important uh, modern work settings where knowledge workers can adjust. But another takeaway is in some additional results, we see that the effects are especially large at low pollution concentrations. So we show that there are economic benefits from further improving air quality, even in regions where it's already quite good, and from lowering um, regulatory standards on air pollution. Anything else that I have not asked you about? Um, maybe another takeaway more for uh, firms and organizations could also be like learning from GitHub and from how work is organized there might also be interesting for them. For instance, we talked about these labels which are attached to issues. So the category of task and the difficulty is highlighted very prominently. And maybe this could help workers to adjust also in other contexts, just highlighting difficult versus easy tasks. Thank you, Beate, for coming to the podcast. Thank you. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to the other papers that we discussed, introductory music and logo by Aitana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Tan. <laughs>